Father, we thank you that, um, yeah, that we do have a time and a space uh, that we can regularly uh, do this. We can fellowship together and gather as the body of Christ, and we can open your word and hear from you um, and allow uh, the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. I thank you for the chance to do that, not just on our own, but together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and um, for the opportunity to learn from one, from one another and to sharpen each other. Uh, Father, I pray now as we uh, look into uh, the book of Jonah and just continue with this passage, uh, you would speak to us and you would give us humble hearts and give us understanding and uh, help us to be honest uh, with our own sin, um, with our own need for repentance. And uh, even more than that, Lord, open our eyes to see your vast and amazing grace for us. Um, even in our worst moments, even at our lowest points, that you offer grace and mercy and you do redeem our lives from the pit. And so Father, I pray that um, as we look into this passage that that gospel reality would be so clear to us, uh, it would move us to worship and to right living. And so God, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are continuing tonight uh, with our third message in our study through the book of Jonah. And so if you have your Bibles, if you haven't already, go ahead and open to the book of Jonah. And we're gonna be in chapter two for tonight. And as you're turning there, let me just quickly review um, what we have covered so far. All right, this is our third message in. In our first message, we kind of just introduced the book. We went over the first three verses and the book opens with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, the prophet of Israel. And the very first verse, it says, um, God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up against me. Right, that's how the book opens. That is God's assignment to his prophet. And what does Jonah do? Well, he refuses. And uh, the people of Nineveh at that time, they were an infamously violent, brutal, pagan people. And Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with the Ninevites. And, and even more than that, actually, we learned that the real reason that Jonah doesn't go is because he didn't want God to have anything to do with them. He didn't want God to forgive them. And so Jonah flees in the complete opposite direction. He goes to this place called Tarshish and he goes there hoping to escape from his assignment and from the presence of the Lord. And during that first message, we learned some context um, of Jonah's previous prophetic ministry. And that context helped us to see that this was especially ironic because Jonah had delivered God's message before. Right, in, in 2 Kings 14, Jonah had previously gladly delivered a favorable message of uh, Israel's expanded borders um, to Israel despite their idolatry and despite their rebellion. And so the fact that, God, that Jonah had done this before, that he had delivered this message of grace before meant that he should have been the best person for the job. And in the past, he had no problem doing it when it benefited himself and when it benefited his own people. But here with this particular assignment, he refuses when it has to do with outsiders like those in Nineveh. And Jonah's mind, his own people were the only ones that mattered. Well, this book is full of ironies and, and that irony continued uh, in our passage from last week. 
And we looked at verses 4 to 16, and in that passage, uh, after Jonah boards a ship to run away, God relentlessly and God mercifully pursues Jonah by sending a storm. And the great irony that we saw in that passage is that it was actually the Gentile sailors, right? The, the pagans, the people who don't know God. And they were the ones who were behaving better and acting in a more uh, godly way than Jonah was, even though he's a prophet of God. We saw that the sailors were the ones who were each crying out to their God. And meanwhile, what is Jonah doing? He is sleeping at the bottom of the ship. The sailors are the ones who were in serious awe and fear of what was happening. Uh, verse 10 says that they were exceedingly afraid. They were in reverence of, of, this, uh, of Yahweh, right, God. And, and meanwhile, Jonah is simply paying lip service. He says, oh, I'm, I'm a Hebrew, right? I fear the Lord. Um, I know the God who made the sea and the dry land. It was the sailors who desperately attempted to preserve and to save Jonah's life. They even felt a sense of responsibility for him, right? They felt bad for throwing him overboard. Uh, you see that in verses 13 and 14. And yet Jonah would rather drown. He would rather kill himself than repent and to do the right thing. And, and what we're meant to take away from all of that, as we learned from Christian's message last week, is that we too ought to examine our own hearts. We ought to examine our own lives and ask ourselves, are there areas of our lives where we are in rebellion to God? where we are failing to acknowledge his sovereignty. Is God trying to get your attention about something? Is he confronting you about a particular area of your life? Is there hypocrisy that you need to turn away from, that you need to repent of? Well, that brings us to uh, where we are tonight. And we're gonna be looking at verses, uh, the very last verse of chapter one and then all of chapter two. And you can think of the book of Jonah as composed of different scenes, okay? And as, as the stormy scene on the boat comes to a close, we move to what is probably the most well-known scene in this story, which is Jonah and the great fish. Uh, and it's understandable, I think, why this particular scene or why this particular picture is the one that comes to mind when you think of Jonah. It, it really is a strange part of the story. Maybe it even feels unbelievable. Uh, maybe you have a hard time believing something like that. Um, although I will say, if you have a hard time with the fish, then I think there are other parts of the Bible that are probably even harder to believe, um, such as Jesus raising from the dead, maybe. But as notable as the fish is, realize that it's only mentioned in just two verses out of, out of the entire book, right? You only see the fish in verse one of chapter two, and then again, at the very end, verse 10. And so maybe that tells us that the fish itself isn't really as significant as we make it out to be. Rather than when we think about this part in the story of Jonah, we shouldn't focus so much on the fish itself. We shouldn't be wondering, oh, like what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Uh, how did Jonah survive in the belly of a fish? How did Jonah fit through the throat of a fish? What should stand out most about this scene in this story of Jonah is what God used the fish to do. And namely, he used the fish to save and to, to deliver Jonah. That's what we should be thinking about. The fish is God's unexpected means of mercy to his rebellious prophet. Now I mentioned during the first message that one of the disadvantages, I think that, especially if you've grown up in church, uh, many of us have uh, with this story is that we are already familiar with what happens. Right, and so you read this part of, this, uh, of, this part of uh, the story and you already know that Jonah's not gonna drown. 
right? You already know that he's gonna be swallowed up, not eaten, but swallowed up, and he's gonna be rescued. He's gonna be preserved for three days and three nights. And so maybe you think of the fish as just like the equivalent of an, a submarine, you know, like in Bible times. In fact, even the author seemingly presents the information to us this way. The first thing that the author tells us about Jonah after he is thrown into the waves is that God has already prepared a fish to save him from drowning. But don't skip too quickly over what's happening here. Don't let the outcome of the narrative or your own familiarity with the story make you miss the significance and the desperation of this moment for Jonah. I realize he totally expected to die. Like he wasn't thinking to himself, okay, like, I guess I'll go to Tarshish. You know, just like throw me overboard. God will bring a fish and just get me to Tarshish somehow. Now, Jonah, when he threw himself overboard or when he was thrown overboard, was thinking to himself, this is the end of the road. Like if I can't run away from God uh, physically, if I can't just sail away from him, then maybe this will do it. Maybe I can just take my own life. And it's at this low point that God intervenes and saves him. And so that is the context of what's going on. That's what Jonah is feeling and expecting. And a couple more things I want you to notice about the text before we jump in. If you look at our verses for tonight, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 17, and then chapter two, verse 10, the very first and last uh, verse that we're looking at, they serve as bookends for this section. It's like, you can even read those two verses, one right after another, right after the other, and then this narrative would continue seamlessly and you wouldn't miss a beat but it doesn't read like that, right? In between these two bookends, these two narrative markers, the author includes Jonah's own words about his very real encounter with death. And in this section, Jonah finally prays to God. You think back to chapter one, like even the captain, when this storm was going on, even the captain of the ship had urged, had pleaded Jonah to call out to his God, and yet Jonah had not done anything. He was still sleeping. But here in this passage, Jonah finally, finally prays. And his prayer recorded here is written, if you look in kind of just how it's formatted, it's written in poetry rather than prose. Um, it kind of takes the, the structure of a Thanksgiving Psalm. So he talks about crisis and then deliverance and then response. Um, I think if you, as we read through it, you're gonna see it's not too hard to understand, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from here that in this prayer, we see that before Jonah is gonna witness God uh, show mercy to Nineveh in chapter three, that Jonah is going to personally experience it for himself first. This prayer helps us to understand a little bit Jonah's sins and shortcomings, not just the first time, but also the second time that he goes to Nineveh. And much like the rest of this book, this prayer helps us to see God's wide and expansive and relentless mercy and grace to his people. And there's a lot I think that's packed into here. And so let me read our passage for us and then we'll jump into our points. Um, let me start reading from uh, Jonah chapter one, verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, and yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And that is God's word. Uh, we have three points for tonight. Our first point is what Jonah learned from the storm. What Jonah learned from the storm to cry out to God in your desperation. Um, throughout chapters one and two, there is this kind of repeated motif of Jonah's downward descent, right? This movement of going down and down and down as Jonah tries to one, run away from God. And so if you think about the very beginning, instead of going to Nineveh, it says that Jonah went down to Joppa and then he went down into the ship, that's verse three. And then he went down into the inner part of the ship, verse five. And it doesn't stop there, right? Here uh, in chapter two, Jonah describes being cast down into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And if you keep reading, it's not even just the sea itself, right? It's not even just the, the water, but the very bottom of the sea. He talks about the ocean floor. He talks about um, the weeds and the kelp wrapped around his head. Verse five, he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Um, in verse one, Jonah talks about crying out from the belly of Sheol. So Sheol in the Bible is uh, this place of the dead who are under judgment. And so I, I hope you're getting the picture here, right? This movement of uh, further and further going down. That Jonah is as low as you can go. He is at rock bottom and he feels overwhelmed. He feels trapped. Uh, he feels captive. He's sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. And let me ask you, have you been there before? You feel like you've ever hit rock bottom. Maybe you think of a time when it seemed like something very important, something very valuable to you was taken away from you. Uh, or maybe you think of a season where you experienced just hard circumstance after hard circumstance and you just were exhausted, right? You're like, this is, there's so much going on right now. Or maybe you, you remember a moment in your life where you realized like you've just wandered down this, this path or this trajectory that you, you never imagined that you would be there. And you're just thinking to yourself, like, how, how did I end up here? And what, what have I done? What am I doing right now? Have you ever been there before? Well, the theological truth that the book of Jonah teaches us is that God relentlessly and he sovereignly and he graciously uses moments like those to bring us back to himself. And throughout the book, the author is clear that God is the one who is behind all of these intervening acts of nature in Jonah's life. I mean, earlier in chapter one, God is the one who hurls the great wind upon the sea, verse four. Um, God is the one who appoints the great fish to swallow up Jonah, verse 17. He speaks for this great fish to vomit out Jonah again, verse uh, 10 of chapter two. Uh, later in chapter four, God appoints that same word there. He appoints a plant to be shade over Jonah's head. He appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it withers. He appoints this east wind, which makes Jonah faint. 
Like over and over again throughout this book, we see that God sovereignly speaks. He appoints and it happens. And actually it's quite ironic that the rest of creation, when God speaks, they obey, right? And the only person that doesn't obey in this book is Jonah. And all of this was God's severe mercy in Jonah's life. I mean, it shows us that, that sometimes we can wander so far from God, right? Our sin is so blinding. We can wander so far from God. Uh, we can wander so far from walking faithfully with God on the right path that we need something to wake us up. That sometimes uh, the sickness of sin is, is so serious that it requires some serious medicine, right? Some wounding medicine. And sometimes God needs to bring us to the end of ourselves before we are ready to turn back to him. I mean, I, I think of the, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, if you're not familiar with that parable, this, this younger son asked his father very rashly um, for his inheritance right before he's even dead. And he goes and he squanders and it was only after he had wasted it all away. When this younger son was found himself, he's sitting in the muck, he is longing to eat the scraps that the pigs were eating that it says he came to himself and he started to make the journey home. Like sometimes it takes moments like that for, and for God to afflict us in this way is hard, but it is necessary. And it's not out of vengeance, but it's out of love. Think about it. God could have very simply moved on. He could have just raised up another prophet who would have been obedient to, to his command. But in God's steadfast love, God is not just committed to his saving mission to Nineveh, but also to saving and sanctifying Jonah himself. As we often say here at Lighthouse, it was not just right, but it was also better for Jonah to live a life of obedience to God rather than to take control of his own life. And so because of that, God pursues Jonah for the sake of Jonah's own joy and holiness. And as we keep reading throughout this book, we actually see that this process doesn't end here in chapter two, that God's education of his prophet is gonna to continue to the end of the book. And so sometimes God sovereignly afflicts, right? That's what he does with the storm. But he is also powerful and he is gracious to deliver us when we call upon him. And I think that's what the fish specifically shows us. That Jonah calls upon God in his moment of desperation. And I think that's what we can learn from Jonah here. He, he realized that the only option that he has is to cast himself upon God's sovereignty and steadfast love. And, and even right before this, Jonah was so ready to give up his own life. And it's only until he reaches this point of desperation that he finally cries out to God. And what does God do? Well, he answers and he saves. And we see this, this theme over and over again throughout Jonah's prayer. Verse two, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Or out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall uh, look again upon your holy temple. Verse six, then I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Uh, verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Uh, I think one of the small group questions from last week was, is there something that God might, be currently confronting you about that you're running away from? And is there something in your life that you need to address? And I think that's a question that we need to ask when we think about God's affliction in our life. But at the same time, we need to recognize that there is the opportunity to turn, 
Right? That's what we see here in the case of Jonah, that God is ready, he is able, he hears, he is available, he delights in showing mercy. And I think so often the fault, what keeps us from turning to God is our own stubbornness, right? We would rather just hold on to control of our own lives than submit it under God's control. We would rather continue in the wrong direction to our own disaster than turn to God. We, would, we mistakenly believe that whatever self-inflicted mess that you're in is too much for God to rescue you from. Here, it, this passage shows us that God hears. He responds. He wants you to cry out. He saves. He responds when we cry out for grace. He can bring your life up from the pit. And he provides salvation even in the unlikeliest ways. I want you to notice and just kind of think about the contrast between the fish and the ship, right? Whereas Jonah pays out of his own pocket for for passage on this ship, this journey and the fish back to land and life is free. It's given by God. Whereas Jonah is foolishly sleeping at the bottom of the bottom part of the ship here and the fish, he is finally brought to his senses. He's finally awake and self-aware. Or as Jonah is prayerless on the ship, he finally squeaks out this psalm of thanksgiving in the fish. The ship is what takes Jonah away in his rebellious escape, but the fish is what God uses to lead Jonah back to obedience. So cry out to the Lord in your moment of desperation. Point number two, what Jonah didn't learn from his sin, uh, the need for repentance. And so Jonah's prayer is honest, it is desperate, it is biblically and theologically informed. Um, actually, if you read through this and you kind of cross-reference from other parts of the Bible, um, Jonah borrows language from a number of, of other Psalms. And I think this kind of makes sense since it would have been the stuff that he was familiar with as a prophet, right? He would have known, uh, known those passages and, and heard them often. But if you look through this, there is something that is glaringly missing from Jonah's prayer. And maybe you guys can catch it. I think it's kind of given away by the, the title of the point there. He doesn't once mention his own sin. There is not a single mention of his own sin. He doesn't admit his own guilt. He never asked for forgiveness. I mean, you, you should read this and think, hey, Jonah, like what about what got you here in the first place? And he, like, he doesn't acknowledge that at all. Maybe that's happened to you before um, and you've kind of been on the receiving end of uh, someone giving you like a pretty lame apology. And maybe you guys have heard that before, right? Like they, when some, this person was quote unquote apologizing to you, they're, they're like uh, talking about the circumstances, they're talking about the reasons that led them to do whatever they did. They never own up to their sin, right? Or they apologize that what they said, they're like, oh, I'm sorry if that offended you, right? Like, like it's your fault you were offended for that or something, rather than owning up to the words that they actually said. Um, I don't have that much experience with marriage counseling, but I have talked to couples who it seems like are just totally blind to their own sin in, in their relationship. And when you talk to them, the focus is always on the other person as the problem. The focus is always on the ways that they have been sinned against and they are totally blinded to their own sinful responses. And they're, only, they're totally blinded to the ways that they've contributed to the conflict. Right? They just don't see it. It's, it's everything outside of them. It's never themselves. And that's Jonah here. And I think the text highlights that for us. Uh, in Jonah's prayer, there's a great deal of focus on himself and on what he will do for God. He uses the word I 10 times in eight verses. He uses the word my seven times. 
Um, in verses eight to nine, it's even more clear. Verse eight, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So that's just like a general statement, but who do you think Jonah is thinking about there? Right? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Well, he's thinking of those idol worshiping Gentile sailors. And little does Jonah know that actually at the end of chapter one, they have already begun to turn to Yahweh, the true God. And yet Jonah is totally blind. He, he sets himself up as this like foil, as this contrast, as this model citizen. Verse nine, look at what he says. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Uh, that kind of reminds me of another prayer uh, from the New Testament, right? From the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, or the Pharisee prays to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Additionally, if you look at Jonah's promises in verse nine, he says, I will make sacrifices. I will uh, make vows to the Lord. Those two things, sacrifices and vows, that might sound familiar because actually that's what the pagan sailors were already doing in verse 16 of chapter one, right? After they learned to fear Yahweh. And so they've already beat Jonah to the punch. Um, one commentator kind of jokingly suggests that the fish is so sickened by, joke, uh, by Jonah's hypocrisy that by the end of all this, no wonder immediately after Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord, the big fish just like throws Jonah up, like he's so sick of him. I said earlier that, that Jonah's prayer here resembles uh, the Thanksgiving Psalms from the rest of scripture. And uh, I think it's appropriate given the situation, Jonah praises and thanks God for saving him from danger. But there are also other Psalms where the Psalmist recognizes that his sin as the cause of his own affliction. And when you read Psalms like that, in those cases, the, Psalm, the Psalmist rightly seeks deliverance and forgiveness of sin before anything else, right? Sin is always front and center. Um, I think of Psalm 51, uh, David's Psalm of repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, that is so different sounding than Jonah's prayer here. And yet that should have been him. Right? It should have been so clearly obvious to him that all of this was self-inflicted, that all of this was the result of his own sin. Now, I'm thankful that here at Lighthouse, we are often reminded of these different categories of sinner and sufferer, right? And I think those categories are necessary and I think they're helpful. Um, and uh, all that those two categories are saying is that all of us are sufferers, right? We live in a fallen world. And we sometimes experience some very real and some very hard things. And so what that means for us is when we're walking with someone who's going through suffering, like you never minimize sin, or you never minimize their suffering. You never just dismiss it, no matter how seemingly unimportant it might seem to you. Because suffering is real and we can't always understand it. And yet at the same time, all of us are sinners. We deal with sin and idolatry in our hearts and, and our suffering isn't always a direct result of our own sin, but our suffering can lead us to sinfully respond. 
And trials and hard things often expose and draw out the sin in our own hearts. And I think for us, the tendency often is to overemphasize suffering and to minimize sin, to focus on what's hard and to distract ourselves from the ugliness that we see in our own hearts. We say things like, oh, your sin makes my sin not a sin. And that's what Jonah does. There's this abundance of suffering language of how life is hard and things are going badly and there is an absence of sin language, an absence of asking for forgiveness. The reality is, is that trials, suffering, even God's sovereign and loving affliction in our lives, it will not be effective and it will not accomplish its purpose if we are not aware of our sin and if we don't deal with it. Why? Because God's purpose and his desire for us is not just good or comfortable circumstances. It's not just easy lives, but his desire for us is to make us more holy and more like Christ. When Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses on the church door, um, which kind of sparked the Protestant Reformation, the very first statement on that list of 95 theses was this. He said, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should, re, should be repentance. Right? That all of the Christian life should be marked by this daily turning from sin and trusting in the gospel. It's not just a one-time thing that you do when you become a Christian. It is the daily rhythm and substance of Christianity. And so friends, is that true of your life? Do you have this continual posture of repentance? Are you sensitive to your own sin? Do you turn to God? I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that Jonah proves later on in chapter four that he didn't totally change. Why shouldn't we be surprised? Because his heart didn't change. He said all the right things, but his heart didn't change. He never recognized his own sin. He never owned up to it. He never took it seriously. But on the other hand, when we come to God with an attitude of repentance and we open ourselves up to God's sanctifying work in our lives, I mean, the message uh, of verse eight, though it's ironic in this context, is totally true. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When we refuse to let go of our sin, when we hold so tightly to our idolatry, we forsake God's steadfast love. Right? We, we forsake the loving work that he's trying to do in our hearts. Um, Christian told the story last week about what his professor said about James 4, 6, right? That verse says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That when we don't acknowledge our sin and we refuse to repent and we just minimize and we just justify that we invite God's opposition to our pride. But yet on the other hand, when we turn to God in humble repentance, then we invite his grace in our lives, right? We invite his transforming grace. And so you see those four bullet points there. Uh, I think those are just good heart check questions just to, to check if we are living lives of repentance or if we are ignoring or, or minimizing our sin. And so, yeah, are you ignoring your sin? Uh, are you just kind of brushing it off, pretending it's not there? Are you excusing or rationalizing your sin? Are you coming up with different reasons why you feel like it's okay? Are you comparing with others or too focused on others? That's what Jonah did, right, with those Gentile sailors. It's easy to focus on the sins of other people and, and just kind of minimize your own. And are you delaying obedience? 
I, I think there's certain situations that take wisdom and uh, there's certain steps you have to go through and, and think through what's the wisest thing to do, but oftentimes there are clear first steps that you can take, right? Clear first steps of obedience that you can take. And so are you putting those off? Uh, so that's our second point, uh, the need for repentance. And, th and then lastly, number three, what we learn from Jonah's salvation, it's salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, at the end of our passage, the scene in the belly of the fish, it, it comes to a close and it ends with Yahweh speaking to the fish and this fish vomits Jonah out upon the dry land. And if you keep reading at the beginning of chapter three, chapter three actually opens the same way that chapter one did. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it. And so uh, what that shows us is that Jonah, the rebellious prophet, he gets a second chance. Right? It starts the exact same way that the original book started, but you keep reading and it's not too long before Jonah fails again. And this is jumping ahead a little bit, but in chapter four, Jonah is gonna pray again. But this time it's not gonna be a prayer of thanksgiving, but a prayer of protest, a prayer of grumbling against God for saving Nineveh. Um, one commentator summarize it, summarizes it like this. He says, in the first prayer, Jonah praises Yahweh for sparing him one person from the punishment he deserved. Whereas in the second prayer, Jonah is angry that God has spared many thousands of innocent children, as well as people who have sincerely repented that the pious prayer in chapter two is matched by the mean-spirited prayer in chapter four helps the reader in retrospect see this first prayer as the author intended, self-righteous, hypocritical, and selfish. And so you, you kind of think about like what ends up happening with Jonah later on, and you kind of think of like what we just read, and I thought of this question as I was studying this, maybe you guys are wrestling with this too, how do we make sense of our passage? Or like, how do we think about like how Jonah is actually feeling here? Does he even mean the things that he says here? I mean, and, and it's, uh, it's kind of unclear, right? Yes, Jonah finally seems to come to grips that he's headed down this dangerous path. He, he comes to grips with his defiance against God's word. He, he cries out. He genuinely understands his desperate plight and his need for deliverance. He, he asks for God's mercy. Um, his experience in the belly of the fish and his change of heart are enough to at least produce an obedient response the second time around. Right? He, he does something different, but at the same time, no, it seems like Jonah still doesn't quite get it. Right? He doesn't go and preach to Nineveh as a totally changed man. It seems like he is reluctantly driven there against his will and, and the same ugly hypocrisy and self-righteousness that we see in chapter one shows up again in chapter four. And as I was studying this, um, some like sermons and some commentaries really highlighted that hypocrisy and then others like didn't even mention it at all. And so I was like, how do we think about this? I think one commentator uh, is helpful. His name is James Bruckner. He says, we should not smooth out the tensions in order to make ourselves more comfortable. Rather, we should recognize our own struggle in them. In other words, Jonah's heart is simply a reflection of the reality of our own hearts. And I think we would do well to just acknowledge that about ourselves, that it is this struggle, that there is maybe genuine change and, and real thankfulness, and yet there is deeply rooted sin and falling into the same patterns of sin again. 
And there are certainly things that we can learn from Jonah and there are certainly more things that we should not learn from him. But I think one danger in getting too caught up in like evaluating and judging Jonah's response and just wondering, is this legit or not? Is that we can start thinking like, and we can start becoming like Jonah himself. We can start looking at him and asking, oh, is he deserving or is he undeserving? Does Jonah really deserve a second chance? But what is the main point of the text? It's not about the fish like we said, but it's not even about Jonah himself. It is about God. The big takeaway here is that God saves Jonah. I mean, I mentioned uh, listening to those lame apologies earlier, right? Maybe you have been on the receiving end of one of those before. And if you have, I want you to think about just how difficult it is to respond graciously uh, rather than sinfully. And maybe someone has offered this like really pathetic, lame apology to you before and you, you've thought to yourself, well, if you want to earn my, my real forgiveness, you better earn it, right? Or at least you better genuinely feel bad about what you did. Because if you give me this like lame sounding apology, it's gonna be really hard for me to forgive you. I mean, that's how we operate, isn't it? Like we want them to earn our grace and our mercy. Well, here we see that whether or not Jonah fully understood the true nature of his, of his own hypocrisy, the wonder of this passage is that God still condescends, that he still answers Jonah kind of prayers when he cries out. One commentator says this, one of the most important things the author would have us see is that when faced with similar perils, there is no significant difference between pagans and Jonah concerning prayer, deliverance, and the type of response to the source of salvation. A sincere cry to Yahweh is efficacious, whether from a pagan or from one of his own rebellious prophets. I mean, I think the very last line of Jonah's prayer is such a fitting summary. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And thank goodness that salvation did not belong to Jonah because the Ninevites would never have salvation. But also thank goodness that salvation does not belong to us because we are like that too, right? We are similarly prone to judge and to evaluate others in those same self-righteous ways. But salvation belongs to the Lord. And his salvation is a sovereign salvation. It is a timely salvation. It is a salvation that delivers from the grip of death. It is a salvation given apart from any merit in us. It is a salvation that is available. It is a salvation that's received when we cry out. It's a salvation for the pagan sailor and the rebellious prophet and for you and for me. See, over and over again throughout this book, the author flips the mirror on us and he helps us to see that we are like Jonah. And sure, maybe you've never been in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea, but if you are a Christian here tonight, then God has saved you and he has redeemed you and he's, he has lifted you up out of an even more disastrous situation. You were dead in your sin. You were lost in your own spiritual deadness. And when you think about all that God has done to turn your life around, you should be more amazed and surprised that you are saved than that anyone else is lost. Alistair Begg put it like this. He says, many of us are so familiar with the doctrine of salvation by grace, but do you know and do you marvel at the grace of the doctrine of salvation? 
Many of us are so familiar with the doctrine of salvation by grace, but do you know and do you marvel at the grace of the doctrine of salvation? And that's what this book does over and over and over again. It continually challenges us and expands our understanding of God's grace. Now, as New Testament Christians, we really should marvel at the grace of salvation more than anyone else. Um, There's a passage in Matthew 12 in the New Testament where Jesus himself, he actually mentions Jonah. He mentions this uh, this very passage. And in that passage, Matthew 12, 38 to 40, Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it's not hard to see the connection, right? Jonah's deliverance in the belly of the fish points us to this greater deliverance that God ultimately provides for his people. That Jesus and Jonah are similar and that in both cases, the place that should have been this place of death has become this place of deliverance and life. Um, For Jonah, it was in the belly of the fish. For Jesus, it was on the cross. And yet Jonah and Jesus are different. Whereas, Whereas Jonah cried out in the belly of the fish and was heard by God and delivered unto salvation, Jesus cried, Jesus Christ cried out on the cross in his darkest hour and he was not heard by God. He was abandoned by him. And whatever grief and despair that Jonah felt in his cry in the fish, there was another that entered into this state of forsakenness beyond anything that ever imagined by human beings. Jonah got himself in trouble. That Jesus Christ took on our troubles. He took on the wrath of God, not because of his own sins, uh, but because of ours, to pay the penalty for our sins. For Jonah, being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights felt like hell, but for Jesus, he did descend into hell for us. And because of that, because of Jesus, who is the, greatest, the greater Jonah, we can be confident that God will lift us out from the pit, that God does hear us when we desperately cry out for grace. And he does forgive forgive us when we turn in repentance over and over again. We can be amazed and marvel at the fact that not only God would save Jonah, but he would save us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. You do redeem our lives from the pit. and, And what we have seen in the example of Jonah, we have personally experienced so much more God, you have saved us from a life of death and sin, and uh, you have allowed us to uh, be in relationship with you. Father, I pray uh, just for what we just heard from your word, I pray that it would take root in our hearts, that um, we would be honest with our own sin, that we uh, would repent of anything that needs to be repented of. I pray for our time in small groups that uh, it would not just be sitting around or, or unintentional, but we would really be active in trying to love one another and, and really trying to engage with this text and apply it to our lives. We thank you, God, that salvation belongs to you. And uh, because of that, that we can have it by your son, Jesus Christ. Um, we thank you, God. We pray for a good time in small groups now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.